History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this fourth episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And this evening's show, we are focusing on Molly Brown and the Molly Brown House in Denver, Colorado. Is that the unsinkable Molly Brown? Well, apparently when the Titanic went down, she didn't. So I guess she was unsinkable. This evening, we will be playing for you an interview that we did with Colorado historian Annette Student. And if that last name sounds familiar, it's because she is my mother. So uh, we're looking forward to sharing that with you guys. But before we get into that, I just wanted to thank those of you who have already tuned into the show. We've been getting a lot of downloads. It's a fabulous thing. And we've actually been getting some feedback via some direct messages. And it sounds like everyone's really enjoying the show. If you haven't sent us some feedback and you'd like to do that, you can contact us at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And if you are enjoying the show and you listen via Stitcher or iTunes, you have the ability to give reviews at both of those locations and we'd love to get them. And it's not because we have egos that we want to get stroked. It's because when you start getting reviews for the show, it makes the show go up in popularity. And so it shows up a little bit higher. You know, right now we may be down in the basement somewhere and we'd like to move our way up. So if you guys have been enjoying the show, we'd greatly appreciate your reviews. And they don't have to be five star. Maybe you don't think it's great, but any any little bit definitely helps us out. So thank you for doing that. And we absolutely love constructive feedback as well. So if there's something that you're like, I like the show, but this would be really cool or a place would be really cool to see, let us know that as well. Because this is a a group effort. We get to be the ones that get to sit here and tell you all about it, but we want you to be involved. And so we really want to make this a a fun thing that people can get their, their recognition out there as well. Yeah, we already have a couple people who have become members of the Spooktacular crew. If you'd like to do that, you just go to historygoesbump.com, click on the Spooktacular crew tab there, and it'll have all the information how you can do that. That website's also where you can find out everything you want to about the show. At the time of this recording, Denise and I had just gotten finished with a very fun and, I think, great achievement this past weekend. Disney hosted their Twilight Zone Tower of Terror 10-miler, and we participated. Yes, and that was quite the achievement. I believe that my hips are now cursed. Yeah, I would have to say this was on Saturday evening, and on Sunday morning, I think we sounded like something that would haunt a cemetery when we were getting out of bed in the morning. Oh, my hips, my back, my feet. I don't think that's what (laughs) ghosts sound like in a cemetery, but uh, something like, Uh, That's what Diane definitely sounded like. 
But anyway, we had great fun. If you are a runner or a speed walker, we mostly speed walk these because I have asthma, so I can't do a whole lot of prolonged running. But if you're interested in doing this kind of thing, I highly recommend doing a Disney race. They are more expensive, but they have fabulous bling and there's great entertainment. And since this was the Tower of Terror 10 miler, villains were everywhere. Yeah. And what's more more fun than running quite a distance and then coming back in through Disney's Hollywood Studios and having Hades at the top of the sign greeting you back and taunting you? Yeah. You know, saying, move along, people. Come on, move along. I don't have all night. You're supposed to be running and not walking. So anyway, we had a great time and we did uh, post some pictures on the History Goes Bump Facebook page if you want to check those out. And I do want to give a shout out to our cousin Tim, who he ran it. So he finished about an hour and a half ahead of us. Um, And so a shout out goes to him as he's working on his own personal goal. And then a shout out to our little cousin Connor, who did the 100 100 meter dash in his Superman um, costume and ended up on the Run Disney website. So he was absolutely adorable and didn't look back. He put his eye on the goal and ran the the whole thing. It was absolutely adorable. And I know that Pete and Julie tune into this podcast. So we want to thank Pete for getting us inspired to even do this crazy stuff. Oh, we're thanking Pete or are we making him pay for our massages? Just kidding, Pete. Welcome to this moment in Oddity History. So many of you, especially from my generation, probably not only read the book, but saw the movie Christine by Stephen King. And um, it was a movie about a cursed car. And so very entertaining movie, left a lot of people freaked out. But could a car really be cursed? Well, today our moment in oddity is about James Dean's cursed car. On September 30th, 1955, actor James Dean was killed in a violent car accident after his Porsche 550 Spider slammed into a Ford sedan that was making a left turn through an intersection. Not long after the accident, rumors began flying that the Porsche 550 Spider was cursed. Some people believe that the car that Dean nicknamed the Little Bastard was responsible for the actor's death, and the history of the car after the fatal crash seems to support that belief, and that the car was cursed. Several parts from the Spider were salvageable from the accident and placed into other cars. The engine, transmission, and tires. All of the cars that received parts from the Spider were later involved in terrible or deadly accidents. When the car was initially brought into the shop of the new owner, George Barris, it rolled off the back of a truck and crushed a mechanic's legs. Later, the car was being used as an educational piece about driving safety, and on a trip to one event, the truck transporting the Spider went off the road and killed the driver somehow ending up on top of the driver after he was thrown from his truck. At another safety event, a teenager's hip was broken when the car's restraint chain snapped and the car fell on the teenager. Then, somehow the spider managed to disappear forever. The other oddity about this with the curse is that there was German Porsche mechanic Rolf Wutherich was riding along with James Dean on that fateful night and was injured in the crash, breaking his jaw and shattering his thigh bone. He later tried to kill himself a number of times. He was never successful, but he did go on to stab his wife 14 times. He died in 1981 in a drunk driving accident. Was this about guilt? Or was he cursed? Was this a carryover of the car's curse? We'll never know, but such a car certainly is an oddity. Pulling the covers up tight. That chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. Ah! 
This day in history, the Grey Ghost Greenback Raid. On this day, October 13th, in 1864, John Singleton Mosby and his battalion of guerrillas staged another one of their infamous raids, dealing a heavy blow to the Union during the Civil War. Mosby was a Confederate Army Cavalry Battalion commander, and his command was the 43rd Battalion, 1st Virginia Cavalry. He was nicknamed the Grey Ghost because of the stealth of his raids and ability to evade capture. His men came to be known as Mosby's Raiders, and they were good at blending in with locals. Union Major General Sheridan had won several battles in Virginia and held most of the territory, but Mosby would be a thorn in his side. On the night of October 12th, Mosby took 84 men to Winchester, and they attacked all day on the 13th, with their crowning achievement coming that evening. Several miles west of Harper's Ferry ran the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Mosby and his raiders displaced several pieces of the track near Brown's Crossing, and then they waited. Around 3 a.m., the Passenger Express made its way towards the area, and when it hit the spot where the track was removed, it derailed, sending passengers flying. The Grey Ghost Raiders sprang into action and rounded up all the passengers at gunpoint, shooting a Union soldier in the process. They burned the rail cars and made off with 173,000 in greenbacks before riding away. The raid halted railway operations for a while and came to be known as the Greenback Raid. to History Goes Bump. Denise and I have both been to the Molly Brown House in Denver, Colorado. We've really enjoyed touring there. Uh, I've been to it several times as it was part of haunted historic tours. And a lot of people out there know Molly Brown because they've seen movies that are about her life. Some of them are close to reality, but as it is with most movies, the reality is somewhat different from the story that they like to put out there. All right. Well, this evening, our focus is on the Molly Brown House in Denver, Colorado. And in order to learn a little bit more about that, we are joined this evening by Colorado historian and author, Annette Student. And if her last name sounds familiar, it's because she happens to be my mother as well. She's written several books. Her latest was Denver's Riverside Cemetery, and she's currently working on a book on the Isla family. So welcome to History Goes Bump. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Well, I think one of the first things we should do when it comes to talking about the Molly Brown House is talk about the woman it's named for and clear up a little misunderstanding that a lot of people have. Obviously, everybody thinks that her name really is Molly Brown, but that's not the case, is it? No. In fact, her name was Margaret or Maggie. She was called Maggie by her family, but she was never called Molly. Hollywood gave her that name when they made the movie that uh, starred Debbie Reynolds. It was easier to have song lyrics with the name Molly than Maggie, so that's how her name got changed. So she got changed with the song lyrics, but who was the real Margaret Brown? In in the movies and the plays and the books, she was often portrayed as an illiterate, ignorant, and coarsely mannered woman. But in reality, she wasn't. She was a, a leader, an achiever. She was independent. She was educated, articulate, an excellent and successful fundraiser. She was very kind-hearted. She was charitable, heroic, a devout Catholic, uh, socially prominent in the United States and abroad, 
She was well-informed, politically active, and a champion for women and workers' rights. Sometimes she was even her own best press agent, exaggerating sometimes. She sometimes told her own good stories. In fact, a very close friend of hers said she was exceptionally bright, a most interesting conversationalist, had a charming personality, and this coupled with her beauty made her an attractive young woman. She was also said to have been a woman of tremendous executive ability, particularly noted for her rare bravery at the eventful time of the Titanic disaster. She was a woman of large philanthropic interest, and she met the request for aid with generous responses. Now, before she became the adult woman. Can you tell us a little bit about her childhood, who she was back then? Yes. Her parents were John and Joanna Tobin. They were very staunch Catholics. In fact, both of her parents had previously been married and both of the both of their spouses had passed away. And uh, after the spouses passed away, they each had a daughter and they moved separately to Hannibal, Missouri, which happens to be Samuel Clements hometown and Samuel Clements is also known as Mark Twain. And so besides their own daughters, Catherine and Mary Ann, they had a daughter, Helen, and they had Margaret, and then they had two sons, Daniel and William. John worked for the Hannibal Gas Works as a manual laborer for 20 years. He didn't earn very much money, but they managed and uh, they considered themselves to be no worse off than their neighbors. In fact, their very small home was very close to the Mississippi River, and the kids played around the river, and they played in the caves uh, that uh, were located along the riverbanks. If you ever read Tom Sawyer, you would know a little bit about those caves. Margaret, she went to work for D.J. Garth and Brother Tobacco Factory. They manufactured cigars. They had a very good childhood and a lot of fun. So one of the key things for everybody to get out of that, she didn't come from money. She's not a a rich woman who was born with a silver spoon in her mouth. No, she wasn't. But she also, uh, I think through her Catholic upbringing and also through her her father, um, she learned social values and she learned charity and to care about other people. And she always was very interested in charitable and very involved as well in charitable causes. So later on, she did get married to JJ. Can you tell us a little bit about that? She married James Joseph Brown, who was known as JJ. And uh, JJ had come, he he had started out uh, in another state as well. And he came, got into the gold mining business and came to the Dakotas where he placer-minded for about two years. And so he learned a little bit about mining in it, through that. And he did that in the 1880s, uh, or before the 1880s. And he came to Colorado in the 1880, in 1880. He worked in several mining camps uh, in Colorado before he eventually wound up in Leadville. By then, he was known as a success. He knew that successful mining wasn't a matter of luck. And in other words, you didn't get lucky usually in mining. Sometimes you did, but usually you didn't. It was usually a combination of genuity and a knowledge of geology. So he started studying everything he could find on geology or deposits and mining techniques. And because of that, he gained a special genius for practical and economic geology. Now, Margaret got to Leadville because her brother, Daniel, moved to Leadville in 1885. And when he got there, he sent uh, money home for 
uh, Margaret to join him. At that time, she was 18 years old. So she came and she cooked and she cleaned for Daniel. And then she worked in the carpet and drapery department at Daniels and Fisher and Smith, a dry goods store selling carpets, draperies, and shades. She always wanted to improve herself and financially help her family and help her father's life as well. She and JJ met through the Catholic Church. They met on a, 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 a Catholic picnic during the summer in 1886, and by that September, they got married. Now, you were talking about how he educated himself when it came to geology and everything, and Margaret was the exact same way. She wanted to educate herself as well, and we're talking, you know, this is the Victorian era, which doesn't seem like it would be a time when a lot of women that would be accepted to have them educating themselves. Well, that's true, too. And you have to remember that Margaret, Margaret's formal education, as far as schooling went, ended at the age of 13. However, both she and J.J. were determined to better educate themselves. And so after they got married, Margaret started taking lessons from a tutor in reading literature, music, piano, and singing. And even after their son Lawrence and their daughter uh, Catherine, who was known as Helen, were born, she continued her education. Every chance that she got, she studied, she would take courses, she would hire teachers or tutors. So how was it that um, that her and JJ became new money? Because, I mean, they were both educating themselves and everything, but they didn't come from the upper crust in the area. And so how was it that they came into the new money or became known as new money? In 1891, J.J. became a minor stockholder in the Ibex mining, mining Company. It was formed by several prominent Leadville mining men, including John F. Campion. By the way, in our Museum of Nature and Science here in the mineral collections area, there is some of the gold from J.J. Uh, or John F. Campion's mines. There are gold nuggets there. In 1893, J.J. became superintendent over the Ibex Company's mining operations. They made him the supervisor because of his mining expertise. They wanted to be able to use that. Before the silver panic, when Congress devalued silver, Leadville was a silver mining town. And after the silver panic, Leadville's mine closed overnight and their owners went bankrupt. J.J.'s mining expertise, however, made the Ibex Mining Company owners very wealthy because gold was discovered in the Little Johnny Mine, which was named after John Campion, not J.J. A lot of people think it was named after J.J., but it was not. And the gold, though, was very difficult to get out of the mine. They had to do some special things in order to be able to extract it. And because of J.J.'s expertise, they were able to do that. And so they all became very wealthy because of J.J.'s expertise that he was in finding the gold. He received twelve thousand five hundred dollars, uh, five hundred shares of Ibex stock, and it was worth one hundred thousand dollars each and a seat on the board of directors. So the Browns became millionaires overnight. Wow. And of course, as happens with people who gain fortunes and whatnot, uh, marital life didn't last for them. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened after they became millionaires and, you know, what happened with their marriage and how they kind of went their separate ways and, and lived different lives? Well, not long after they became millionaires, they moved to Denver. That was in the early 18, uh, early 1894. And they purchased an elegant but modest-sized house at 1340 Pennsylvania Avenue, which we'll talk a little bit about later. Margaret moved her parents in to her home, and she supported them the rest of her life, which fulfilled her wish. Her desire to help women 
laborers and the poor prompted her unsuccessful run in 1914 for the United States Senate in Colorado. Almost 17 years, she played a leading role in Denver's politics, philanthropy, and society. And she was also involved in the suffragette movement. In 1893, Colorado became the first state to grant women the right to vote, where other women across the United States finally get the right to vote until, I think it was either 1920 or 1921, that all the states uh, granted women that right. And it was part of these things here that with Margaret being involved in these things that took up a lot of her time, and J.J. was involved very much in the mining business. His health was was very poor because of uh, the plaster mining he had done in the Dakotas had hurt his health. So he was traveling around to try to find a cure. The Brown family had gone in March 1895 abroad. The whole family uh, traveled to Europe for the very first time. Margaret liked traveling. She enjoyed learning new languages, and she really loved Paris. J.J., however, was not real keen on Paris. He, uh, and because she enjoyed that traveling, she did start to travel abroad without J.J. They were growing apart in many, many different ways. And J.J. also had a paralytic stroke that affected his mind. He got a form of dementia because of that. So he didn't remember things real well. He and Margaret were legally separated after 23 years of marriage in August 1909. After years of poor health, lived for quite a few years in Arizona. He lived some time in California. And then he just arrived in New York. He he passed away at the age of 68 on September 5th, 1922, and he is buried in the Holy Root Cemetery on Long Island. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. We've come up to the time period where we're going to have the Titanic disaster happen. For people who were in Colorado, they knew Margaret Brown fairly well. This is something that's going to make her probably, would you say, internationally known? Yes, she became internationally known after this. This really made her famous. She was very much admired afterward in some respects. So yeah, I would say it, it, it did make her well known. Do you want to tell a little bit about the story with the Titanic, what happened with her? Yes. If you've ever watched any of the movies that have had the Titanic in it, and the way that she has been portrayed, I would say that Cameron's Titanic was probably one of the better representations of her. But in 1912, Margaret was traveling abroad with her Newport friends, John and Madeline Astor. And Madeline was John Astor's second wife. He already had grown children, and he married this woman a lot younger than himself. And they were kind of on their honeymoon trip. And Margaret was a very good friend of theirs. And they had gone to Egypt, and, and they'd been in Paris and all over. And while they were in, I think it was Paris, she received word that Lawrence's son and her first grandson here in Colorado was ill, extremely ill. And so Margaret and the Astors quickly booked passage home on the Titanic, which was going to uh, travel on its maiden voyage. On the night of April 15th, the Titanic struck an iceberg. But instead of being afraid, Margaret was practical, like she always was. She changed into her warmest outfit, a black belt two-piece suit. She placed on seven pairs of woolen stockings, one over the other. Then she put on a sable stole J.J. had given her some years before, and she wrapped this silk, it was kind of like a hat and a scarf together in a way, but she wrapped this thing around her head, and then from the room safe, 
she took out $500 in bills and she placed them into this small wallet that she wore around her neck under her clothing. She strapped on her life jacket. She took a blanket from the bed. She grabbed a three-inch turquoise-colored Egyptian statue that she had gotten in Cairo, and she slipped it into her pocket for good luck. Not all the other passengers did what Margaret did. A lot of them showed up in lifeboats or out on the deck in their night clothes. She boarded lifeboat number six. It was the first to pull away from the port side. It had room for 65 passengers, but it only carried 24. Now, I think they're rowing away this um, the quartermaster is yelling at them to get away from the ship or they're going to be sucked down and all of this. And then they're a little bit of a distance away. They're far enough away where they won't be sucked down. And they hear screaming and a lot of noise. And they watch the ship go under the water. And Margaret described it. It looked like the waves or the water just enveloped the boat, like it just cradled it in in the ocean's arms and took it down. A few hours after dawn, well, when dawn came, they saw that they were actually in a field of ice. They had ice all surrounding them, and they saw another lifeboat, number 16, was near them, and number 16, they threw out a rope, and they kind of tied themselves together. A few hours after they separated the boats and started rowing again, they were rescued by the Carpathia. Uh, Margaret, by this time, was exhausted. Her arms and shoulders were sore. Her fingers were frozen, legs and feet wet and numb. As soon as she got on board, and many times over, she expressed her gratitude to those on the Carpathia. Right away, she started helping other survivors. Hardly sleeping on a long trip to New York, Margaret consoled survivors from second class and steerage who spoke little English and had lost everything. So that's where her languages came in handy, if she was able to speak with these women and help them. At breakfast the following morning after they were picked up, Margaret asked fellow first-class survivors for help on behalf of the poor foreigners who had lost everything, their husbands, their money, sometimes even their children. They were coming to the new country with nothing except for the clothes on their back. And a committee was formed with Margaret acting as the chair. Immediately $4,000 was pledged. The names and contributed amounts were typed up and they were tacked on the wall at the foot of the stairs. Well, that cost a little bit of social pressure and so they were able to raise ten dollars to $15,000 more because nobody wanted to look like they were cheapskates. After the Carpathia died, in New York, Margaret, still wearing her black velvet suit, remained on board until the next day so she could stay with survivors she was helping. After learning her grandson was okay, she stayed in New York and set up temporary headquarters. She and three other women uh, directed foreign survivors to various consuls in New York, contacted friends and relatives for them, and sent a flurry of telegraphs on their behalf. They tried to ensure that donations of cash and clothing were directed to those that needed them the most. The Survivors Committee, formed at breakfast on the Carpathia, continued its work, and Margaret was its chair until her death 20 years later. Twice more during her lifetime, Margaret was rescued from a ship that was sinking. Now, how did her life come to an end? After J.J. died, he didn't leave a will, and she and the children fought over what was left of his estate. Eventually, the estate was settled, and Margaret had uh, some money, and the kids got some money, but it didn't last real, real long. And what little bit she had left, she tried to, to hang on to as much as she could. Well, she was staying at the Barbizon Hotel in New York when she died at the age of 65 in her room on October 26, 1932. And she was buried next to J.J. in uh, Holy Rood Cemetery. So let's talk about the house. Its technical name is the House of Lions. Is that correct? Yeah. And 
And it became known that while JJ and Margaret owned it, it was because of two huge stone lions that she had uh, statues that she had out in the front of the house on the uh, around the front porch area. So what is the architecture of the house? What does it look like on the outside? The house is a three-story, modest, but elegant Queen Anne-style house with eclectic Richardsonian Romanesque and refined neoclassical architectural elements. At the time that the house was built, Queen Anne was a very, very popular architectural style for houses all across the United States. A lot of the wealthy had Queen Anne style houses, but they also would include different kinds of elements, sometimes Italianette, and in this case, it was eclectic Richardsonian Romanesque. Eclectic meant that it had various different kinds of designs along with this Queen Anne. And the architect who designed this was... um, a well-known Denver architect, William Lang. And from 1886 to 1893, Lang designed over 150 notable Capitol Hill homes in Denver, as well as buildings such as uh, St. Mark's Episcopal Church here. One of his trademarks was putting stained glass windows of some type on uh, along the staircase, usually on the first landing of the of the staircase. A lot of the staircases would have a first landing and then they would go up to the second floors. And kind of curve around and go up. He would have these beautiful uh, stained glass windows. Sometimes they were peacocks and uh, all different kinds of designs, but they were just gorgeous stained glass windows. The house was also, it was constructed in 1889, and it was made of, uh, exterior is made up of Castle Rock Rhyolite with Manitou red sandstone trim. The Castle Rock Rhyolite was quarried uh, it's like a lava rock, and it was quarried in Castle Rock, Colorado, which is about 30 miles south of Denver. The, uh, the red Manitou sandstone was quarried down in the Colorado Springs area. The house was not originally built for J.J. and Margaret. They bought it after it was built. time that they bought it, Queen Anne's were really no longer being built by that time. That They were kind of going out of style. The house was built for the largest. Isaac and Mary Lard, and they bought the uh, three lots that the house sits on for $4,000, and then they hired William Lang to design it for them. Well, Mary's health became very bad, and of course, they also suffered some from the 1893 silver panic, so they decided to move outside of Denver and move near where Montclair is. Then they sold the house then to J.J., on April 3rd, 1894, for $30,000. After the Browns bought the house, then they made several changes to the front area. They built a retaining wall at the sidewalk level. Uh, They put in a newer, longer walkway that had uh, sandstone columns framing it, and that was constructed up to the porch. They took off, they replaced the wooden shingle roof with um, fireproof French tile. The two small porches that were in the rear of the house were combined into one large enclosed brick veranda. There was also a one and a half story Castle Rock Rhyolite carriage house in the uh, rear of the, the uh, house. So that sounds like an amazing outside of the house. And I, our guest, if you're listening, you can go to our website if you want to see pictures of it. It's an absolutely gorgeous house. Can you go ahead and go from the outside to the interior and tell us a little bit about the inside of the house? Uh, yes, I will. And one of the things I'm going to, one of the comments I'm going to make right now is, when people come to visit the house, and it is open for tours, it's now known as the Molly Brown House Museum. And a lot of people, when they come there, they remember the movie that Debbie Reynolds was in, in this huge ballroom, and these huge rooms, and they go, well, this house isn't very big. 
and it really isn't. It was really a very big house when the Browns lived in it compared to other houses in Denver. It was considered, a, 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 you know, although it was modest, a sort of mansion to a certain extent. But it was never as big as what it was portrayed in the movies. When you walk into the house, you step into a foyer, which contains a fireplace, a beautiful wood staircase, and a hallway closet. The doorways lead, there are two doorways, and they lead into, one leads into the dining room and one into the formal parlor. The walls are covered with gold-painted, embossed anaglyptha, and that's a brand name for a type of wall covering, much like paper mache, which is made of layers of paper pressed together into designs. So that it was, it had gold color, but it had all these designs in it. It's very pretty. And it's still in the house today and looks very good. The staircase, the wainscoting, and the fireplace wood are all golden oak. And the house's four fireplaces were all there for aesthetic purposes only, for show, because the house had central heating. So it was very modern. Margaret decorated the formal parlor, which was the best room in the house. You always put the best in the formal parlor. That's where your guests were shown into. And she had artwork, souvenirs from her travels, overstuffed circus chairs, a polar uh, bear rug, a piano, uh, colonial revival floral swags along the frieze that was, went across uh, around the uh, the top of the uh, ceiling uh, along the walls. Rose-colored wallpaper and Renaissance revival window treatments showed off the stained glass in the front window. She also had stained glass there. A number of the room furnishings, such as the family Bible and the needlework on the walls, displayed the Browns' values and their aspirations. Then if you walk through the other door, you come into the dining room, which was the house's second most important entertaining space. Their dining room has an unusual ceiling. Uh, it's painted to resemble a palm-filled, sunlight-drenched conservatory, and it was created to give guests the feeling of alfresco dining without being outdoors. There was also a door that led from the dining room outside onto the porch. So that could be opened up and, and they could dine, you know, have some diners outside in the summer months and you could just have this open feeling. There were pocket doors between the dining room and what they called the family parlor. And that's where that would be like our family rooms today. And there was also a pocket door between the family parlor and the formal parlor. And, and these doors, uh, pocket doors are, they are doors that slide open and they slide into the walls so that you don't see them. And uh, the doors were closed between the dining room, family parlor, during luncheons and dinner parties. But they, the pocket doors also served another purpose, a more practical purpose. They maintained heat during the winter months. Margaret later converted the family parlor into a library and it had, you know, big, huge bookcases in it that were just filled with books because remember she was well educated and she loved reading those books weren't on her shelves for looks they were on her shelves because she read them um, the bookcases in the room were sold to the Cosgriffs who rented the house from the Browns for eight years but the museum got those bookcases back in 1994 they were very very lucky to get them back and after 76 years they were returned to them Wow. The kitchen uh, was laid out, and the kitchen was just behind the dining room. There was a butler pantry in between the dining room and the kitchen. The kitchen, technologically, was advanced for its day. Uh, it had indoor plumbing with hot and cold running water, electric lighting, and a coal stove and ice box 
which enabled the cook to create meals in one place for the family, servants, and guests. Electricity also ran the enunciator or call box in the kitchen. And what the call box was is had every room had a bell in it so that if you were in your bedroom upstairs, you could ring the bell in your room and it would be, it would ring downstairs in the kitchen electrically and they would know in the kitchen that you needed something upstairs and they would come up to find out what you needed. The second floor is reached by climbing the either the foyer stairs or the servant staircase. On the first landing uh, from the foyer um, uh, area are two beautiful stained glass windows, like I said, William Lang's trademark. At the top of the stairs is a small sitting area, and just off of that sitting area is a door that leads out onto an outdoor balcony where Margaret had hired musicians play to entertain her guests. A lot of times, the lots next door were empty, and so she could kind of go over next door and have set up for, for outdoor parties and things, and she would have these musicians playing music for these affairs and things. Um, a hallway runs from the sitting area to the rear of the house. Along the hallway are five sleeping chambers with a bathroom at the end. The indoor bathroom uh, has, has a porcelain tub, a sink, and a toilet with a water closet. Having an indoor bathroom like that was a status symbol to show your wealth, but a lot of the wealthy families were, did have indoor plumbing at that time, but the Browns never had to go outside to an outhouse. The servant staircase and a staircase to the third floor are at the back of the house, and Margaret employed two Irish maids and a housekeeper who doubled as a cook, and she also had a butler and a groomsman who took care of the carriage and the horses. The female employees had quarters on the third floor, which most servants did have quarters on third floor, and the males lived above the carriage house. The title to the house was transferred to Margaret in 1902 because of J.J.'s poor health. When she and J.J. made that two-year round-the-world trip in 1902, they rented the house to Colorado Governor and Mrs. James Orman of um, Pueblo. And he was the Colorado governor from 1901 to 1903, so it became the governor's mansion while he was there. After the Browns separated, she didn't spend very much time in Denver at all. When she did, she usually stayed at the Brown Palace Hotel, and J.J. didn't really spend any time in Denver either. He was His health just didn't was not good when he was here. The house was rented out to other people then while they were gone. So from uh, she kind of stayed in the house till about 1911. In, from 1911 to 1919 was when the house was rented to John and Bessie Cosgriff, the people that got the bookcases. And they had uh, four children, Ellen Stewart, Seward, uh, John, and Edward. And John was a prominent and wealthy merchant, sheep man, and banker in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and Idaho. In 1920, the house was rented again to another family. And in 1926, a Lucille Hubble was renting the house, and Margaret evicted her because she was subletting rooms. During the Depression, many single-family dwellings were converted into boarding houses or apartments, so Margaret turned the House of Lions into a boarding house under the supervision of her housekeeper, Ella Grable. It never served as a single-family dwelling again after that, but it never became an apartment house like some some houses did here. It was never separated into kitchens and bathrooms in each room. Uh, when Margaret died in 1932, it was at the height of the Depression, and the house was appraised at $6,000 with a $3,100 mortgage on it. Her house, it was auctioned off, so were the household furnishings. 
they, the furnishings got $200 in the auction. In 1933, Jay uh, Weatherly uh, pur purchased the house for $5,000. So that was the year after Margaret's death. It went through a few more, uh, it went to three more owners over the next few years. The exterior never changed, but the interior was extensively modernized. Finally, the last person uh, to purchase the house was Art Lysing Ring. And he purchased it in 1958. He lived there and he operated a gentleman's boarding house. And about the same time as when the movie, The Unsinkable Molly Brown came out and there were plays being done on, on Margaret. So he tried to get people interested in the house's restoration um, because he couldn't really afford to keep it up. And nobody seemed to be really interested. And by the late 1960s, he just, he just couldn't take care of it anymore. So he leased it, the house to the city's juvenile court as a home for wayward girls. In 1970, a Denver, a Denver resident, Christine Coswick, feared that the house might get demolished, and it, there was talk of that happening. So she wrote to Colorado's first lady, Anne Love, and she said, won't Denver recognize Molly in some way? Well, Anne Love gave the letter to Bob Sheep, who was executive director of the Colorado Council of the Arts and Humanities, and Sheep already had been approached by Lysenring, so he knew about the house and that. So he contacted uh, Ken Watson, a professional photographer and amateur preservationist, for help. Watson brought together a group of concerned citizens, and on December 11th, 1970, they incorporated themselves as Historic Denver, Inc., and they began their grassroots effort to save the Molly Brown House. Through a massive media appeal and a numerous various fundraising efforts, they were able to purchase the house in 1971 for $80,000. Over the next 10 years, they raised over 180000 to start restoration, and they started to restore it to look like 1910 when Margaret lived there. Margaret had taken photo had photographs taken of rooms throughout the house. Uh, she was giving a garden party, and so it was all decorated. So she brought in a photographer, had him take all these pictures, and those pictures were invaluable in restoring the house back to the way it was when she lived there. Without those, they would never have been able to do that. And most houses don't have anything like that. This was just a very lucky thing for them. As time went by, it has cost them over a million dollars to date to restore the house and to purchase back some of the furnishings that were originally uh, Margaret. All right. Well, I want to thank you for joining us this evening and giving us all of that wonderful information. I think everybody knows Margaret Brown a lot better now and her house as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Mom. You're very welcome, and thank you for having me. I enjoyed sharing my knowledge of Margaret Brown. Maybe people now will have a better appreciation for such a wonderful, magnificent woman if she were alive today, she would be the CEO of a company. Yes, thank you so much, Mom. It was really interesting and fun to always have you join us with your knowledge of Denver history and especially tonight of Molly Brown. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, that was a phenomenal interview. And as is the case with a lot of historians out there, they don't get so much into the paranormal, but occasionally they get pulled into it whether they want to or not. Uh, I bet if you ask a lot of people who do ghost tours, they started out as historians and then the ghost story started rolling in and they just kind of got pulled into this. So Denise and I are going to share with you the paranormal activity that's been going on around the Molly Brown house because 
for my mom, that's not something that she's really looked into. And one of the things that, especially if you're in the Denver area, the Molly Brown House itself hosts several Halloween-inspired events each year with both their Victorian Horrors Tour and Ghosties and Goodies Tea. You can check those out at www.mollybrown.org. So both Margaret and her husband, JJ, have been seen roaming the halls of their former home. And JJ, who enjoyed smoking a pipe and cigars, must still be enjoying these items in the afterlife because the scent of the smoke can still be detected on occasion. And the unique thing about this was that JJ was not allowed to smoke in the house when Margaret is around. Now, a lot of the reports say that the scent is coming either from the attic or the basement. What do you think when you hear that, Denise, about JJ? Well, it probably would indicate to me that he was sneaking those smokes inside the house and not out in the Colorado cold. I would have to agree. Margaret's mother, as you heard from the earlier interview, passed away in the home, and she is sometimes seen standing at one of the windows. And occasionally the window blinds will go up and down without any seen assistance. Also there, you will um, have incidences where rocking chairs are rocking without assistance, and the tinkling of piano keys is sometimes heard. And the dining room hosts a ghost that rearranges items and has been photographed sitting at a table wearing her Victorian best. Keep in mind that this home has also served as a type of halfway house for girls and we all know that activities that could lead to paranormal activity are a possibility. So is the Molly Brown house haunted? That is for you to decide. Well that's it for the show folks. Thanks so much for joining us this evening. If you like the show we would appreciate you sharing it around on your various areas of social media and for our next show we will be focusing on the Roosevelt Hotel in Hollywood. Dun, dun, dun. And as we talked about James Dean this evening, we'll be talking about another star from that same period, Marilyn Monroe. And until next time, I'm Diane. And I'm Denise. Thanks for being here. Goodbye. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.